Hi, welcome back to Let's Deconstruct a Story. I'm Kelly Borden. So glad you're here. Let's Deconstruct a Story is about breaking down the writing process and how authors eventually end up with the final work and all the things that push them in their creative process. We talk about some great concepts and ideas here. I am glad you are listening in. We have a great show planned for you today. I'm here today talking with Bonnie Jo Campbell, and we're talking about her story, Bortaint, which was originally published in the Kenyan Review and then was in her award-winning short story collection, American Salvage. And that was in 2000, that was published in 2009, correct? It's so funny that like, how could that have been so long ago? It seems crazy. It is wild, isn't it? How fast time goes. But okay, so I wanted to ask you about the genesis of this story. Do you remember? I know that I know, sometimes it's I funny pick these. To look, it's funny to look back on it. And I, I was trying to think um, one of the genesis. I, whenever I look back, I in most stories, I find there were many ways that it came about. Like I normally don't even start writing a story unless I have three reasons to write a story, you know, three powerful reasons. And um, but the first reason that I can remember is that I wrote my first novel was Q Road. And um, I don't know when I wrote that, I don't know, 2003 or something during my first writing career before my before I crashed and burned and then had to resurrect. I was writing a story about a farm couple. It was a normal farm couple to start with, but I ended up changing it to a farm husband and then this young teenage girl. And I always felt like I betrayed that farm wife who was in that original story, who was in the original, in the novel originally, like a normal farm wife who wanted to make the farm and was responsible. So that was one of the, that was one of the reasons I wrote it. Okay. Yeah. Another inspiration was that my aunt Joanna, who was a city girl her whole life, she went off and got an agricultural degree and then her married a, a pig farmer in Ontario. And we all just thought that was the funniest thing. Cause she'd been married to like a, uh, Ivy league professor and then got rid of him and then went <laughs> off and married a pig farmer. And we always thought that was funny. And then another <laughs> inspiration was that my mom told me about going to visit some farm people uh, way off in the country and, uh, who, and I think they didn't have electricity. And she just told me this story about how spooky it was to go into this house where these people were, who were these old farm family, but they were not all there. You know, they were kind of demented, you know, in her, her view of it. And so those, maybe those three things came together. Like I, a lot of my stories came from a, like a, I'm not an image person. I don't, I don't even see images in my head. That's why I have to write them. I don't, I don't, I don't even see them. I don't, I don't either. I, I'm, yeah, I don't either. I'm, it's actually, it's called, a, there's a disorder. I don't remember what it's called. I just read about, I, I just read about it. And then I realized I had it too. And it, yeah. I, it's, well, I'm just, I, I sort of am interrupting you because I'm like so shocked. At some point it's worth talking about because I, for a while I felt guilty and I didn't tell anybody I had this because I'm like, oh, they're going to find me out that I'm a fraud because I don't have images. And then I realized that's why I'm so desperate to create images on the page because I don't have images in my head. When I read other people's stories, 
I don't get images. Mm -hmm. And so it's a special delight to me when other people tell me they read my stories and get images. Do you get, um, do you get words? Is that what you get? Like if someone says to me, yeah, I get concepts and Uh I get words. And so I have to build anything that's other than concepts or language. I have to build. And can we say the name of it? I always forget the name of it. Um, I don't know Uh, the name of it because we'll come up with the name of it because it's, it's a great word. It's a, it's a sort of a new thing. Um, And we'll, we'll come up with the name of it because it's, it's a, it's a crazy thing. But at first I felt guilty, like, oh, how can I be a writer? I must be a fraud if I can't see images. And then I thought, no, we're desperate to create images. If we don't have them in our heads, I can create dream images. Like in my dreams, I have images, but never any, any other time. That is so wild. I, um, yeah, I guess it's sort of like painting, uh, with words, you know, if you just see in your head. So if someone said to me, um, you know, what does your living room look, look like? I'll get like the word living room and then I'll have to, and then I'll have to be like, okay, well, what is in the living room? And then I'll have to work really hard Right, you construct it. I construct, you construct it. You yeah. don't Im- imagine it. And I know a lot of other writers who tell me, it's funny, I, I know writers who tell me they have a hard, I always assume they had an advantage if they've got an image in their head. But some writers tell me their image is so vivid and they can't turn it into words. Wow. So that's just as big of a problem, I right. guess. Right. You know, well, you've, writers. Def- you've definitely... Uh, overcome it because it's just incredible. I was, I mean, I was going to ask you about all the images and all the, but, um, we'll, we will get to that. So while you're looking up the word for our disorder, <laughs> I will, I'll ask you, cause I think it it's was called in, aphantasia, aphantasia. It was in yeah. the New York it's times. It's a good word. Yeah. yeah. It's a good word. <laughs> yeah, aphantasia, I'll, a I'll neurological a- condition. So there we are. Wow. <laughs> and I confirmed it with my husband. Cause I was like, do you see, and he sees images like yeah. a minute. My yeah. husband is a mechanic and he, he says that he basically in order to solve problems, he envisions say a car engine and he envisions it in order to see where something has to go. Right. So if you don't have that, then you, you have to rely on creating diagrams and, and building the thing. And I, and I think a lot of my writing is world building. Mm-hmm. I always use that term that I'm a world builder. And so I think that is very literal that I'm a very slow writer. And so to create anything, to create the world just takes me forever. And so I really feel like I have to keep building it and rebuilding it and rebuilding it. And then finally, I cre- when I've done that, I can live in the world and finally write the story, you know. So when you are starting the story, does the dialogue and the character come first? And then say in your second or third draft, you start building in the setting and everything else? Or how do you go about overcoming that? Because I usually I, start with, um, I've got to start with something that I already have an emotional concern about, mm-hmm. you know, an emotional attachment. And it usually is that I've been thinking about a character who's in a tough situation. So that's usually the impetus for a story. That's my impetus to start writing a story. If it's some 
character in a conf- an interest a character who's interesting to me who's in a confounding situation mm-hmm. you know so mm-hmm. in this story um i am interested in a you know uh somebody who came at farming from the academic <laughs> you know i mean most of the people i know who are farmers were born into it. And so, you know, that's one mindset. And so I, I became interested in how does somebody actually come at this from, you know, I mean, I knew about these agricultural degrees and I thought that were so strange. And then my aunt went and got one at age 45 or whatever. And so, you know, to come at it from that, from that place, from academically seems very interesting to me. But then when you're faced if you come at it from that angle, then when you're faced with the actual blood and bones and grime and bleach and everything that's involved in farming, you know, I figured that was going to be a different challenge than if you grew up as a real earth mother type, you know, or a real, if you grew up as a farm woman, that would be different. So I started out with her being just in that mindset and, and being in a tough spot. And what did she, um, so the actual, so your aunt, did she actually have any of similar issues or did this all, did you just spin off right away into the fictional world with, you know, with her wanting, having all these schemes to make, you know, money and. (laughs) Well, she was a schemer in real life. It's funny because I had forgotten this and and I just was rethinking this. Um, I have my aunt's tombstone in my family when somebody dies you make a rock for them and you just make a nice bit not a not a proper tombstone but a rock and and hers has snow peas on it because she had this big idea that she was going to grow snow peas and make a a fortune on snow peas and that must have been my inspiration i hadn't remembered it for a while but um so she was somebody who came at it you know abstractly she was very very and I, I, I'm like her in many ways. So I come at things abstractly and it takes me a while to get into the gritty meat of a thing. Mm-hmm. And even though that's, I know that's where I want to be. My mother was the opposite. My mother, who I write about all the time, is the one who starts out in the blood and guts and never really even gets to the abstract unless it's a good joke. My mom, if, if it was a good joke, it was worth, it was worth becoming abstract over, but mostly she just was at home in the dirt. And uh, so, but, but I wasn't, you know, I must've been inspired by this aunt trying to make these schemes, you know, making these schemes work. Right. Well, I, um, okay. So it's in close third person and it's such close third person that when I went back to think like, oh, what perspective is it in? I almost thought it was in first because it's that close. I mean, it's pretty close. Um, Did you think about writing it in first person at all? Do you remember? Or was it always just... You know, the funny thing is this story, a lot of stories I have, I did go back and forth from one to the other. But this story, um, this story, and it's funny, I'm going to ha- show you this folder. Oh, cool. It says Vortaint on it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> In the old days, I always kept all the different versions of the stories. But I did look and every version was in third person. It was. Some of my, and, and I would say that uh, that is my go-to third person past tense is my go-to. I'm very traditional. You know, that's, a, that's the traditional viewpoint. However, there's a lot of stories where I then decide later, uh, no, that, that would be better. That, that narrator is actually pretty unreliable. I'll take that narrator into 
into the first person. That's where she belongs. Right. You can have some fun with that. Yeah. Yeah. And often it's just a good exercise. I've actually had, I mean, I don't know if you know, but I take years, sometimes decades to write stories. So I have plenty of time, meanwhile, uh, to, to figure out the right way to, to do a story. I mean, I, drive everyone crazy because it, it takes me so long. But um, often I will take a story out of third person, put it into first person, try it there for a while, and then decide, nah, that wasn't a good idea and put it back. And then what I end up doing is learning a lot about the story in the meantime. You know, I have even put stories into present tense, um, which, you know, makes me like the young people, right? <laughs> it does. Yeah, it's hard. And- I never do that. I mean, it's very hard to do that. Well, I don't know. Feels- I know uh, I know instructors who tell all their students, Pete Fromm, I'm going to call him out. Pete Fromm, who I used to teach with in Oregon, mm-hmm. always wanted his students to write in the first person present tense. Why is he, that? I, he just really liked it. And I, I think he felt that it got rid of a lot of the backstory that was, I think he felt that a lot of new writers bog their stories down with backstory. And I think he felt like in that present tense, you were less likely to clog up your story with backstory. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I have a question, a follow-up question on the taking years to write a story because I just talked to George Singleton and he's going to, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a Southern writer, but anyway, he was saying that he, um, that he writes 25 to 50 stories a year. And I was thinking, Oh my, Holy crap. I know. Does he finish them? He does. And he sends them out and he's been in the, yeah, he's been in the Atlantic. And I was like, what? I mean, how do you, so do you start one, you put it away, you get to a certain point and then you're like, I'm, I got to put this away for a little while, start another one, come back to this one or. Often I do. Yeah. I mean, I, I work on a story as long as I have energy for it. And as long as it keeps capturing my attention. And fortunately I have a good attention. I don't know how, on the one hand, I'm, I'm actually ADHD. And I, on the one hand, I jump from thing to thing. I always have to have a story going. I have to have poetry going. I have to have an essay going. I, I usually have a novel going. So I do have those going, but there's something about my emotional attention that is very long lasting. So I can stick with a story for a long time. And I always say it's the same. It's why I make a good wife. Cause I can, you know, I've been married for <laughs> God's 37 years. Wow. And I really don't get tired of my husband because I keep learning new things about him, you know, and I, I kind of feel the way about my stories. Like they're my friends. Like I can keep learning things about the characters. If I just stick with them, like, like there's more in there. If I just stick with it and keep working on it, but I did, you know, when I work on a you know, I had one story in this same collection, this story, this was an American salvage and my other story bringing bell home. Mm-hmm. That was the one I worked on for 24 years. And that one, I would work on it as long as I could stand. And then I had to put it aside. You know, I had to put it aside for a while. So then how did you know when it was finally, uh, how do you know? Do you get a feeling like I got uh, there or <laughs> you don't know? There's the problem. You go as far as you can uh-huh. and then you hope like hell and then you have some friends that you can share it with. Right. And at least at, and I was looking in my folder, my boar taint folder, and I saw this story. I actually had fewer drafts 
than almost any other story I wrote. I had fewer drafts and it turned out that first paragraph was kind of there from the beginning. That's Oddly amazing. Enough. That is amazing. Yeah. Do you want to read that first paragraph? I don't always ask, or unless you don't have it right in front of you. But I'm not saying it's a great first paragraph, but it just stayed right there. The boar hog was advertised on a card at the grocery store for only $25, but the Jensen farm was going to be a long, slow drive farther down LaSalle Road than Jill had traveled, past where the blacktop gives way to gravel, and farther past where it twists and turns and becomes a rutted two-track. Ernie was finishing the milking when Jill hooked up the stock trailer. He had given her directions already, but before she pulled away, he came out and stood beside the truck and studied her, the way he'd done when she went to Ann Arbor last time. They'd been married almost a year, but maybe he hadn't been sure she was coming back. I mean, I don't want to say that something bad had happened to her, but she's very wary around men. It comes up over and over again. When she comes back from the Jensen's, there's the neighbor and his son. And and when Ernie's not around, the son, you know, stands too close to her. And then the very harrowing moment when she enters the Jensen's and I mean, talk about a visual when I, I have that here. One of the most haunting moments for me is when she enters the Jensen house and as her eyes adjust to the dim light, three more silent men materialized at the table. And finally a boy, the men all had a forward curve to their shoulders with their forearms on the table as though they were defending bowls of food only there were no bowls. One of the men's eyes settled on her breasts. And and then I really was like, oh, I feel like totally terrified for the, but she's, she has this thing with Ernie that he's very calming. Um, she feels, it seems like she feels very safe with him. And yet I just had the impression that she's used to, that she was not that she has felt like prey almost, but that she's very aware that she's a female in a male dominated world. I don't know. Well, you tell me. (laughs) I was, I was just on edge. I actually think that's what the story is all about. And nobody, it's interesting that you're saying that because nobody else has ever taken that tack with the story that it is all about masculinity and it's about being a female surrounded by masculinity. And, and it's also about the, I mean, now we throw around terms like toxic masculinity, you know, and I, I don't remember hearing that at the time I was writing the story, but this masculinity that's just in, I mean, it's, it's impossible to get away from. And by the end of the story, the masculinity, you can't keep it down. Mm-hmm. You can't keep this masculinity down and it's necessary for this rural life to go on. It's necessary to have this powerful masculinity that will keep rising up. You know, the the pig seems dead, but but when it gets to the farm and smells the females, that masculinity rises up again. But it's terrifying for her in so many situations. And I think women living a farm life um, have 
you know, there's a certain aspect of farm life that it's very masculine. It's a very masculine existence. There's a wonderful farm memoir by Judy Blunt, and I can't believe the name of it slips slips my mind, but it's easy to find. Judy Blunt. It's and I'll it, look it up. I'll put it, it on. Yeah, and it's really a wonderful memoir, but it it shows how like. There's some aspect, and that's why she's coming at the farm life through this academic lens or this academic direction. But the farm life is this, is this big hog. That's what the farm life is. And it's about sexuality and it's about, it's about reproduction. And, you know, nobody really, I mean, the story, she doesn't, she doesn't have kids, you know, that's not part of her existence and there's no mention of kids. So she's kind of, counter to most of the farm world, you know, which would be all about a woman her age having kids. And so that isn't, isn't a part of her life, which is, which is sort of unnatural for her environment. But, but yeah, going, I mean, masculinity can be terrifying. It is. I mean, (laughs) it's just because everything is so it's a, there's a physicality to the story and there is the, you know, some creatures are larger than other creatures have more strength than other creatures. And like, you can't get away from that on a farm. You can't like the woman who's in the the Jensen woman, she's standing at the sink. She's in this, she's skinny. She has a gash on her leg. She's staring at a boarded up window. So like, there's just no escape. And, she, and in order to get out, she would have to pass all these men who have nothing to eat, like, so they're starving. And, and I felt like this desperation coming off of them, um, which could lead to who knows what, you know, and she is just very quiet. She's doing like this slow motion washing of the dishes. And I, and, but then also Ernie, even though Ernie's such a great guy and they're having a wonderful time, it's almost like he's indulging her, uh, you know, he's indulging her and he's not saying anything. Like, I, I forget how you put it. Uh, Jill was sure Ernie felt skeptical about this whole plan she had concocted with the neighbor for raising pigs for pig roasts. The longer he didn't express his skepticism, however, the more desperate she felt about ex- about succeeding, especially after her last two farm schemes had gone so badly. And that felt very masculine too. Like, I, I will allow you to <laughs> have this crazy plan, you know, and not say anything. And uh, am I reading into that too? Or... <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's all very, I mean, Ernie's definitely one of the guys, you know, he's one of these guys at the end. And, you know, and it's almost as though, I mean, there is a magical element to the story too. And that this, it's this magical masculinity of this pig and how does the pig come alive? Well, he smells, he smells the guilt. He smells the young females, but it's also Ernie whispering to him, you know, she pulls in the dog, you know, the pig looks dead. And then her husband goes back and says something to the pig, (laughs) you know, and it's like, there's this like magical bond of masculinity among all these people, you know, and there's this neighbor, I mean, they're all drinking beer, you know, they're all drinking beer in the driveway. It's, it's a classic scene of a bunch of guys, a bunch of rural guys drinking beer. And then they're sort of indoctrinating, they're bringing this pig in with them. And, you know, 
Yeah, they're all together. (laughs) He's like, here, I here I am among my people. (laughs) But it's meant. But it's. uh, But you know this this what goes on at the Jensen house is meant to be a cautionary tale. You know, this is the bad end that could befall a woman if it doesn't go well. Right. You know, this is her worst nightmare that here she is with these guys. And, you know, the woman at that house, who knows what she's doing? I mean, we get the feeling she's being held prisoner. But yeah. on the other hand, she's also kind of in charge of the men. I mean, it seems like she's the only one doing anything. And she's the one who who directs the boy to go out and help with the pig. But uh, it's, it's a it's a situation that we don't you know that that maybe Jill's parents you know there's a little suggestion of that her parents are worried about her you know her parents are worried about her going off and becoming a farmer and uh maybe this is what her parents have feared you know and Jill has naively not considered that this is a possible end to her adventure yeah and um and it's mostly her father too so there's that end of the masculine like <laughs> spectrum there yeah he's got an idea about masculinity which is you take care of everything and you keep the house neat you keep the house and yard neat and you replace the screen when there's a hole in it and you know she's entering a different kind of masculinity you know she's she's entering a kind of ferocious place that's a little less safe yeah there's so there's a huge class thing happening as well so there's um she's come from this background where she's educated and it sounded like i i don't think did we know what the father did i'm not sure but he was he seemed very educated and like when there was a screen broken um he would just replace the whole screen he wasn't duct taping it he wasn't using black thread he, and then um but then she comes to this place where even having chocolate is a big deal. Yeah, there's definitely a class. There's definitely a class issue. And, you know, maybe back when she was in school, I mean, probably she didn't think twice about buying a chocolate bar. You know, she probably didn't a fancy chocolate bar. She didn't, she wasn't worried about that. <laughs> and uh, it, it, uh, She's in a state where losing $25 means something. And, you know, it's it's hard to know exactly. I mean, she's definitely in financial straits. She's probably not in as much danger as, say, Ernie is, because he probably really doesn't have money or any backup. Whereas we get the idea that Jill, you know, she could leave him and go home again. That seems like an option. And, uh, and, Originally, there was an end, ending to the story was different, and she did leave. She left this hog. She couldn't handle what was happening at the farm, and she just left the hog, unhooked the trailer, and drove back to Ann Arbor and oh, was going to wow. decide what to do. Yeah, I didn't know that she was leaving him, but then, you know what? I thought, no, nope, she's in this. She is in this until she's not. She is deep in this world that she's decided to enter. So I was glad when I decided that, but she's definitely, you know, these, these class issues are real and you know, that very structure, you know, you think that old Jensen farmhouse, if that house, you know, she thinks, Oh, if that was in Ann Arbor, somebody fixed that up and insulated. And, you know, I, I mean, you've seen it in the countryside in Michigan, you know, go over in the thumb, there's beautiful houses that just, get they go to hell because nobody you know nobody can live in them nobody works there you know 
Yeah, but if they were in Ann Arbor, they'd be worth like eight hundred thousand dollars or something. <laughs> and it's so strange to me. Like she, um, I mean, we'll talk about visual, you know, imagery that you. I mean, all of the visuals at the farm. You know how the the bottom step. You know, her foot almost goes through the bottom step because it's rotten. There's no door handle, um, and then she. What are those? So I don't know a lot about those poison things she walks through. Poke berries. Or... Oh, the poke berries. Poke yeah, berries. those are poisonous. Yeah. yeah. And they get all over her face. And they stain you purple. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, but they were cultivating one of those. And I wonder. Well, what that was, the... a, no, actually, that was a joke that. Oh, it was made. a joke. Okay. Well, I like, was like, yeah, oh. because she shows up and she's all purple. Okay. And so he has to ask, oh, they guess they're cultivating, you know, obviously they're not very good farmers, the Jensen's. <laughs> right. Well, there was a couple things that I missed because I'm so. In fact, I'm taking a master naturalist class because I'm so um, inept. Oh, that's <laughs> right a good now. thing for a writer to do. Yeah, it's really fun. But um, I missed that. And then I missed the part about the boar. See, I didn't realize what woke the boar up was the the smell of the. No. And, I just, and it's just yeah. because I don't have that background. I was like, <laughs> oh. Um, it was like, there's something to breed here. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm coming back. So, um what about boar taint? Like, where did you first hear about, have you always heard about people being wary of eating boar or what's the story behind yeah, that? Yeah, well, that was, a, I mean, I always, I thought it's funny because when, you know, my first understanding of boar taint was that you never ate a boar hog. You know, you never ate a boar hog because it tasted, the, the meat tasted off. And I can tell you, when I was young, we did an awful thing. We had this big old boar hog. I don't know where we got it. And we got this idea of, got this idea of, it was probably 350 pounds. And we got this idea with this old farmer friend of my mom's like, ah, we're going to castrate him. And so we went in and castrated this hog. And it was horrible. I mean, it was just, first of all, it was very difficult to even hold down a 350-pound hog. And then we're cutting this these great big balls off this hog. And, like, I know I'm just a kid. I'm 10. And I know this <laughs> is wrong. This is so wrong on so many levels. And everybody's miserable. <laughs> and I can imagine. <laughs> so we do this and I don't even, I mean, I'm now I can't even remember. Did we stitch up the scrotum? I'm not sure, but it was a mess. And that poor hog like did not do well. And eventually we did eat him, but you know, it didn't make farm life ha any happier for anybody. So I had this idea that boar taint was the real thing. And I have tasted that tainted meat before. And I've even tasted uh, lard. We always ate lard because when you're on a farm and have pigs, you get lard, you cook everything in lard. Sure. I'm sure it was heart disease. And I mean, I mean, as a kid, I didn't get heart disease. So I guess I survived it. But um, I could even taste the taint in that in that lard. However, I've read things since that say, oh, no, bortane is a myth. And especially I think men's groups believe that bortane is a myth. 
And it might just be that it isn't always tainted, but I like the idea of it as an idea that male meat is tainted or male meat has this special power mm-hmm. or that, and that this would be something to avoid or it would be something desirable possibly. So mm-hmm. I just like the whole idea of it. I think the language sounds good, boar taint. It's a nice phrase. And, but it's funny, I looked back and I could not believe that I had a different title in the beginning. The title was, for me, the title is always the last thing to come, but I, I think I had this Vortain t- title fairly early on, but I call it, I was calling it the last supper because oh I was so taken with these people sitting around this table. And I'll be honest, I think I had spent more originally in the early versions. I think I had more description of that room and of that table. And yeah. I think, yeah, and I'm going to guess that I realized that was kind of indulgent. Um, I, I think I like the m- more minimal description. I mean, if you read it, it doesn't go on very long. I mean, it just, you know, I really was trying to c- kind of create a horror show. You but did, in the- You did it. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, just, I mean, just the fact that they materialized at the table, you know, it was like she goes in and then they materialize. Right. She can "Ah." see one. There's one guy sitting there. She thinks he's dead at first because he looks dead. It's like, but no, there wouldn't be a dead man at a table. (laughs) And yet, but of course it puts the idea in the reader's mind. So the reader's like, oh yeah, there could be, there could be a dead man at the table. Right. But yeah, they they materialize out of thin air. So I really had fun with that. But I, I think, you know, in general, I write long and then I cut back. Okay. So, you, you know, had- often I cut back like 50%. Often the story's much longer. This one I think was only about maybe, maybe it was a 25% longer. Because it, it's still 7,000 words. It's still pretty long, right? It's around, I think I wrote down, it was like 7,700 words. Is it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which is quite long. You know, these days they don't. Nobody wants a story over 5,000 words. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I'd yeah. be a failure. <laughs> no. I mean, I like writing short shorts. That's fun, too. I like writing the shorty ones. But, yeah, I really take a while to get going. I, I really think I really think the best short stories. And, in fact, uh, Jamie Gordon was my short story, was my teacher. It's funny. Jamie Gordon, who, you know, won the National yeah. Book Award with her novel, she never really cared for short stories. She was really a novel person. But, you know, she had to teach writing. And so, you know, you can't read, you don't want to read everybody's novel. So she always was encouraging us to go long. So oh, really? that was very nice. Yeah. Because I do know that plenty of plenty of writing teachers encourage their students to, they encourage their students to write these shorter shorter stories, mm-hmm. you know? So I really appreciate it. I think she would have liked, she wanted to think she was making novelists out of all of us. So when you wrote it the first time, did you have more about the Jensen's wife? Like, were you really going to stay with her for a little bit and have her speak more or? Yeah, I think I did have her speak more and I, I just had a little more going on with them. And, and then I just realized really the importance of them in the story was to be this cautionary tale mm-hmm. and to show this tableau. I thought it was more powerful as kind of a tableau of the, here's the bad news. <laughs> here's the bad news. And this is what it looks like and feels like. And I, I felt that I didn't need to develop her. I, I yeah, because my inclination is always to give people a little more, um, to give, to give her a little more, to give her a little more dignity 
but I just felt like there wasn't, that wasn't where the story was going. What do you think, you know, if you were to think about her state of mind at the end of the story? So we get to the end of the story and um, the, they find out the boar has also been shot a couple of times. So he's got like, the, <laughs> I know, he's like survived like... any, everything. <laughs> <laughs> and then that also comes up in the, you know, the waters when people are, I mean, it's interesting that there's so I much know, shooting going on. You just can't kill. You just yeah. can't kill. Them. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, um, so do you think, I mean, it was a great last line. You know, this boar was exactly what she needed. A creature even bullets could not stop. And <laughs> and were you thinking like, that's the mentality that a woman has to have to survive in this situation. You have to be so tough. You have to. Well, it's both because it's, it's her having to be unstoppable. But it's also that she is now entirely bought in to this masculine thing that and it's the masculinity that can't be killed you know that's what it is it's this masculinity and maybe you could say it's the masculine part of herself you know we all have masculine and feminine elements um, right. to ourselves but i do i do think there's something a little scary about this un, unstoppable thing that she has now been a part of creating right you know you know they could have let she's die in. with it. she's <laughs> in they could have let it die with the jensen's and the jensen's i mean you could see it if you if you like to look for themes and i don't write with these in mind but i'm i enjoy them when they show up mm -hmm. and i think part of it is the the farming life it's not over i mean it's going to have to keep changing, but these scrappy farmers are going to keep on. These scrappy farmers are going to keep on. The The Jensen's maybe are the old way of farming where you did it all by hand and you could be stupid people doing it. I mean, you could be just, they just don't seem very smart, the Jensen's. I right, mean, there's not right. a lot, not going on a well, lot they're not, here. Right. They're not yeah, eating they're well. Not, they're, they're, they're not malnourished. eating well. They're cerebral. There's yeah. not. They're not a cerebral group. Whereas possibly with Jill's cerebral nature and um, the masculinity of Ernie, it's possible they can keep this farming thing going for a while longer. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted it both to be terrifying that they couldn't kill this pig, and also you know kind of inspiring. You know, right, right. <laughs> I want it to be both. And almost always, I want everything to be both. I want everything, I every sentence I write, I want to be maddening. And, and that's why I really have a hard time writing, uh, finishing a thing. Because my readers, they don't know where I'm putting them. They don't know where I'm taking them. Okay, is this good or bad? And I'm like, I don't know. It's both, I guess. Right. Everything is good and bad. And so it can be maddening when you're writing a novel and, you know, for other, for your readers, when you're like, Maybe. in the same sentence, you're making a character miserable and happy in the same sentence. And it's just maddening for your readers. So I, I really do have to tone myself down sometimes, but. Yeah. Well, and I found that I'm reading The Waters right now, which I'm loving your new novel, which is oh, coming out in you. January. Yay. I'm so excited. And um, and I'm thinking about the rattlesnake and how do you say it? Uh, the Massasagua the rattlesnake. The, yes. Um, I mean, can be both, right? You're making it a clear 
I mean, it's in <laughs> it's this a I'm like, and it, present it, danger <laughs> and it's magnificent and yes. essential. You know, this rattlesnake is exactly what the swamp needs and it fits its niche. But, and, and, and most of the men from town want to kill all the rattlesnakes. And these women do see the value of the rattlesnakes, but some of them want to kill it too. And yet they also want to keep, make sure there are more rattlesnakes in the future. So right. yeah, the rattlesnake continues all through the book and becomes everything, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's funny with a symbol, like a rattlesnake, a snake, because snakes stand in for everything. It turns out I've written several stories about snakes and they represent everything. They represent healing. They represent sin. They represent rebirth. They represent women. They're phallic. They represent men. And so I just love a symbol that can be like whipped around like that. Okay. So this, that leads me into, because in the waters, it's also, um, you go into the whole history of farming and the, the, the area, you know, what used to be farmed and then what's moving out to California. I know I'm moving off Bortain, but we're, I mean, we're still in the rural community. And, and I was just thinking how, what is your, uh, like how much research are you having to do or how much of this is just things you've learned from living in the, you know, in a rural community your whole life and, and knowing the background? Yeah. I mean, what, what I find is that research is, research is so great. Research is so much fun. And you know what? It's the very best way to procrastinate and never write. It is. Research <laughs> is the best way not to write. And so I'm always cautious about doing too much research up front. So what I try to do is write as much as I can without researching, just using what I know. And I know a lot because over the years I've learned, you know, I've learned a lot. I'm interested in this stuff. I'm interested in the, the agriculture of this area. I know a lot. So for writing the waters and, and also for Bortain, I just wrote as much as I, I wrote it how I wanted it to be for the sake of the story. So what I, you know, I start writing a story because I have an emotional need to explore somebody's situation. Mm -hmm. So I write as far down that path as I can exploring the situation. And then when I, when I get as far as I can get, then I got to check some facts and often I'll find out I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I got to And I got to fix it. And the great thing is, I don't mind fixing it. I can solve problems. I'm a mathematician. I can solve problems. I can solve any plot problem. You right. know, so for me, the real hard work of writing is getting, you know, getting the emotional tenor right, getting the, the feelings of the characters, getting those is is impossible. That's where magic comes in as a writer. That's where you need to have magical abilities. Mm-hmm. But the plot, you know, even a math major can figure that out. That's what I always say. So right. that stuff, the facts of the world, I can go out and find the facts and make those work. Very rarely have I been really stopped in my tracks by the truth because there's usually a way, you know, Let's say you're working with a character and you want X to happen really badly. You want X to happen because you want this character to have X as mm-hmm. his experience or her experience. So, okay, what if it turns out you can't have X? You just can't because logically it doesn't work or historically. 
you can still have him fantasize about X. Right. You can have him want X. You can have somebody else in the neighborhood have X. So you can have X, whatever right. it is. But you do have to respect whether your character could really have X. And and so I do research and um, I talk to everybody I can. I'm friends with farmers and I will consult. You know, I, I think for boar taint, I really did have to talk to a lot of pig farmers. Yeah. I had an uncle who was a pig farmer who wouldn't always tell me things. It was very hard to get anything out of him. My uncle Jim, he's very really? slow. Well, if you ever talk to farmers, you know, not no. And I was going to ask you necessarily about they're they don't necessarily get it what you want to get at. <laughs> they you have, just do it. They, they like to talk about the weather. Uh huh. Not farmers, like not like the <laughs> not like the process of farming. <laughs> just the weather. Exactly, and and they they see it so differently than than the way you're trying to present it, and so. But I mean, I love talking to farmers, so I get all I can about, you know, what I'm doing. But but the far, but like I knew a lot about the celery farming. That's a big Kalamazoo thing. That was a big celery farming thing. And that used to be the big thing around here. And I, I really enjoyed investigating that and loading it up with symbolism that maybe it doesn't deserve. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. And, and just the tenacity of you know, just picking like another crop and then going on to that and, and doing, and I didn't know, well, we don't have to go into it specifically, but I didn't know about the soybeans that you just kind of like people didn't really want to do the soybeans, but. <laughs> I don't know if that's really true, but I always thought that the, I always had the idea, see, this is where I, you know, I may get in trouble, you know, when this book comes out, because I always had the idea that men took more pride in their corn than they did in their soybeans. Well, it's very phallic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the corn is tall and proud, you know. Majestic. And the, soybe the soybeans always seem kind of feminine to me. And then, of course, we all love that it does kind of relate to the old uh, Native American farming method, which was the corn and the beans on the squash. Right. You know? So I like that it sort of brings us close to that. But we're not quite there. We're not quite at the... You know, the Native American way actually creates, you know, the squash creates shade. So you don't have to, you know, it protects it. But we have, you know, artificial irrigation. So I guess we don't need the squash. We right. don't need the thirds. If if the corn's masculine and the and the <laughs> and the uh, soybeans are feminine, then we needed a third sex. Right. You know, exactly. To do something the else. Squash. But, they, <laughs> but we've done away with that in our society. We don't need the third sex. Right. Right. Well, we may find out we're wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel like yeah. we are. We are figuring we're, we're, out. We, we, we need. We, are, the, we already know that we're wrong. Um, <laughs> we need something else other than the masculine and feminine alone. Ex exactly. So, um, what is your? So, your background is that you've always have you always lived in a rural community? Then you obviously went out off to college, and then you went and got a master's, and you know whatever. So, some of you the experiences that Jill had coming back could be you too. Like you're, <laughs> I mean, I know the sure. answer. Yeah, sure. Well, I am, you know, I'm accused by my, by the people around here being an overeducated idiot. I believe that's what they call me. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, it's funny because I'm the only one in the family who went off to college and 
yet I'm the one who has the reputation of being scatterbrained and a knucklehead. And I think they're just, I think they just call me that because they have to, you know, they have to belittle me somehow, <laughs> but I think they love me and appreciate me, but they do tend to tease me about not being, having common sense. Mm -hmm. And so there is an element of Jill that she does not have maybe as much common sense as, mm -hmm. I mean, she's a dreamer, you know, she's right. a dreamer and, you know, Ernie is more the down to earth common sense kind of, or I should say traditional. He's kind of been doing things the way his you know, his father is mentioned in the story and he's doing things the way his father did them. So it's Jill who's trying new things and trying to do something else. And I'll make the case that these are, this is the only way that farming survives is if you have both of those things. It does make sense that you need some innovation. And um, I can't believe we're running out of time. I hate when this happens. And I feel like I haven't asked all the questions. But the one that I <laughs> wanted to get to is the uh, the chocolate bar really made me think, okay, <laughs> is she gonna make it because she cannot? <laughs> like, she's got to have more than just one little square of chocolate. And, you know, she does like eat it all, even with the pig shit. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And it's funny. I'll, I'll tell you the truth here. I, uh, today, right before I left, I left home, I was going off on a bike ride and I was talking to my husband and he had a, he had a whole thing of these, you know, you know, these little Giardelli things. And my husband, we had this bag of them and, uh, I don't normally eat them. Usually I resist. I mean, I'm a 61 year old lady. I don't need to be eating chocolate all day for various reasons. And I stood there. I was talking to him, my husband, who is very, I am very much in love with my husband. And I'm thinking about this story. And I stood there and ate four of these. That's something <laughs> I haven't done for years. It was like your passion was just coming through. It was. So I think there was something about that. But I, I do. It was fun to have the chocolate bar because it was, um, you know, we all do want we want to have restraint and we want to have our ways of seeing the world. And the way to eat this chocolate bar in her life is to, you know, she doesn't have a lot of luxuries and it's to have a little bit at a time. And it's a precious treat. And and maybe that's even a nod toward the farming life. Like, I remember my grandmother, she, my, my grandmother, like chocolate was precious to her. The, mm -hmm. you know, she made chocolates and they were like the, even the ingredients were precious. And so I like that there's this outrageous aspect of Jill that there's a certain aspect where she's saying, screw it. I can't do it. I can't quite do this farming life. I have to be, I have to have something. I have, right. there has to be something for me in this, something more than just this masculinity and this, this surrounded by men drinking beer and men and their hogs and everything. So I do think that, that she just needed that somehow. And even with that pig shit smell, it tasted <laughs> really good. So, I mean, it could have been a sad thing because it could have been she ate that chocolate. And it was ruined by the, by the, basically the boar taint, you know, it was ruined by the, by the pig, but right. it wasn't, she it was pleasure out of it in a way you could say it was ruined because she won't have it later, but you know, right. And was, it's, and it's either she fortified, right. And it's either she gets used to it or she doesn't get used to it, you know, like that she's only <laughs> going to have chocolate, like 
three times a year or whatever she's she's yeah and you don't know but I think that's kind of cool because you know it, it ends with her um she going back there and sort of realizing that she's got to come to terms with all of this but yet the chocolate is hanging out there you know like we know she's not completely you, you you didn't wrap it up in a bow, basically, <laughs> because she still has a few issues. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think she's going to need a lot more chocolate in her life. <laughs> I think so. She's going to have to find a way. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything I didn't ask you about before we, because I always ask this question. I feel like sometimes we run out of time and I miss something crucial. Yeah, no, I'm glad we talked about this, about this masculinity of it, because I, I do think that's something, it's just so hard to talk about in this, you know, no, we don't even want to have, we don't even want to talk about masculinity and femininity anymore, because we're all, we're all trans, we're all both, we're all everything. Yeah. But that's, in a way, that's all the more reason to talk about it, because we have, we all have those elements of this, of masculinity and femininity in us. Right. And so I like seeing it. I think often my work often, and it's very much in my new novel, the men are men and the women are women. And it isn't to say that in real life, we're not all everything, but on the page is a good place to explore these aspects of ourselves, you know, on the page the same way that we explore them in fairy tales. Mm -hmm. um, I think my writing in some ways is always got a fairy tale element to it. So Definitely. there's a, there's a, there's a, a fairy fairy tale element to it where magic plays a little role and these kind of extreme versions of people always appear in my writing. So, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't mind that because I think it gives us things to explore. No, I agree. And also like how much have we all absorbed this way of the world is like, you know, maybe the masculinity or the misogyny, sometimes some people might say some misogyny, uh, but also just we've absorbed the world and we have to grapple with what we've been given, you know, and, and so you create the world where we can do that. So I, I loved it. I loved it. It was well, amazing. And I love the novel too. I can't wait till it actually comes out in the world and everybody can read it in January, 2024. Do you know the exact date? Yeah, I think it's January 9th, January 9th. They told me that's a magical date because people are, they don't want to do anything the first week in January, but they say that by January 9th, people want to go out and buy a new book. So Okay. Oh, cool. cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me on. What a pleasure to talk to you. This is crazy. I feel like I, you know, Zoom, I know people criticize Zoom, but I almost feel like I'm sitting down and having a chocolate bar with you. I know. It's so fun. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I would never get this experience. So I really appreciate it. And uh, everybody is going to love the story. And I actually send it to some of the other writers um, who've been on before. But as usual, so this was just a new idea. I had to send it to everyone and um, sort of try and form a short story writer community. But I'd never give anyone enough time. So uh -oh. <laughs> I may, if, if I get a question from someone, I may email you after. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Okay, okay. well, let's keep 
the conversation about short stories going. We need it. Okay. Thank you so okay, much, thank Bonnie. Thank you, Kelly. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and were able to add some creative tools to your toolbox. All donations are greatly appreciated as they keep our production quality high. To donate, please visit kellyforden.com. Thanks so much to Elliot Bansell for his tremendous audio engineering finesse. Stay tuned. We'll see you next month.